Welcome to A Pitcher Full, where we explore all the different ways that we fill up our wellness glass. On this episode, I speak with Francie Webb, a hand expression educator and author of an incredible book that tells the story of her transformation through healing from tragedy and finding that she is enough. Okay, Francie, thank you so much for coming on A Pitcher Full. I'm really excited. When I started this podcast, you were one of the people that I had in mind, so I'm excited that this is actually coming to fruition. Um, Welcome. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I um, devoured your book in, I think, two days, which is very unusual Mm. for me. Um, In all your spare time. In all my spare time. um, Since I became a mom, I think I only read parenting books and it takes me a year, you know, to get through <laughs> unless it's on Audible. And yours, I just flew through because I just mm-hmm. wanted to get to every page. On the outside, first I should I should say what the title is. It's Go Milk Yourself. You have the power to express it. And so on the outside, I thought I'm going to read a book about hand expression. But I was pleasantly surprised to find that this book is way deeper than that. It does speak about that, but this book has a lot in it about life and um, spirit and healing and all types of stuff. So that was really exciting. Um, I want to ask you, um, I'm not going to ask you why you wrote it, but (laughs) but I do want to ask you what made you decide that you were ready to write a book when it seems like you have so much that you are still learning in the book. I was so happy to read you say things like, this is what I'm doing until now or yet, or, um, you know, and you seem so open that you don't have all the answers yet, but you still wrote the book. Yeah. You know, I wrote a book a few years ago that was a very simple essentially glorified brochure, as one reviewer called it, Okay. Um, about hand expression. I was highly offended at that review, <laughs> okay. but it truly was. It was, I'm going to write my, what I've learned about how to hand express breast milk, and then I'm going to make sure it's long enough to meet the requirements to become an ebook. And so I kind of stretched out the pages. And so that book sat on Amazon for a few years, quietly. And I just kept thinking, there's so much more to say. Mm-hmm. And then I had some major life changes, some of which happened to me and some of which I then made happen. And I just kept thinking that my book was needed in the world. I kept thinking what I know now is needed And it's needed by me, clearly, because here I am living it. But it's needed by others. And I really wanted to get it done in like, you know, a month or two. (laughs) (laughs) And then I connected with a really fantastic editor. I asked her to um, just revise my first book, Hand Expression. Um, An Honest Guide to Maximizing Your Breast Milk. And... In the course of her editing, I mean, it came back with all of these red marks on it. And I just, I, 
I finally said, let's meet in person because this had all been via email. And we sat down and I said, there is so much more to say. There's so much more to me. And I can't talk about hand expression without talking about my life and what I've learned about life. Um, and so it became something so much bigger and she and I started working together and it grew and grew and grew. And 16 months later out came the baby. (laughs) And so it was time because it was time the same way that, you know, babies choose when they're born in some way, shape or form. Right. It was somehow needed in this world. And I got very impatient at times. And then it was just like, nope, this baby needs to be exactly what it is. Okay, well, that's a good explanation. Um, I want to ask you about two things um, that I hope you'll tell stories on. One is your business of helping women to learn how to hand express in a roundabout way came from your dedication to yourself and your self-care. If you would tell the story about you really wanted to go on this yoga retreat that you had been on um, for years with your friend and you weren't going to let missing pump parts get in the way of you getting to do that, which I was really impressed by. Um, Can you tell that story? Yeah, I had, I decided one year before I had kids, before I was married, that I was going to take myself on a yoga retreat. And I chose this particular yoga retreat at a time that I was very angry. There was, I had, I was very angry at someone who had betrayed me several years before in a relationship. And I was reading Yoga Journal, which magically appeared in my mailbox one day. Mm -hmm. I still don't know why I got a year subscription to Yoga Journal, but it appeared. And it said, this is the year that you go on a retreat. Hmm. And I said, that's it. I'm doing it. And so I found this retreat in magical Ojai, California. It's an amazing place, a very spiritual place. And my dear friend from summer camp who lived in San Diego and I went to that retreat for several years. And so it just became, if I'm going to do one thing for me, it's going to be this yoga retreat. And I would go every year and I would think, what if the way that I feel here and the things that I do while I'm in Ojai, what if I could do them in my life outside of Ojai? What if that were possible? And then each year, little by little, I realized this weekend in Ojai is starting to feel similar to other parts of the rest of my life. Hmm. And one of the things that I learned about yoga by then is that, you know, yoga is, a way of life and not just the asana practice, not just the movement of the body, but it's a way of noticing and attuning and relaxing into places where there are tension and really stretching your body and mind and heart and consciousness so that you can be more present in all of the things that you do. And so here I am going on this yoga retreat with my friend for the, I think it must have been the third or fourth year by then. And I am missing my pump parts. And I know this, it's one of those moments when I can picture exactly where they are and it's not on the same side of the country (laughs) as I. (laughs) Every pumping mama out there is just (laughs) crying for you. It was 
awful that moment. And I'd worked, I mean, I always say I'd worked my boobs off to get all this milk so I could be away from my baby for 48 hours. And the very last thing, I was so obsessed with pumping, my life was ruled by it, which is, you know, a, definitely a commentary on maternity leave in this country, yes. <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. And I had a fantastic maternity leave as far as the United States goes. And so the very last thing that I had to do before I went to bed every night was pump. And I would hope and pray that I could get a full three ounces in that pump <sighs> because I needed those three ounces for the next day. And, you know, I've made enough bonus milk and I, that I have them in the, in the freezer ready to go. Baby's going to stay with my in-laws in California while we're in Ohio. And, uh, I, my pump is still on the table and I used to unplug the tubes and the cord right when I was finished pumping. And I just saw myself, she, my friend and I are driving away to Ojai from my in-laws house. And I, suddenly I picture myself taking the pump off the table that morning and putting it in the perfectly pump ready space in my bag. I knew exactly what size it was. And I put it right there. And then I didn't pack the tubes and cord. And I mean, it, when that moment hits, you don't know. And I say this in the book, like, you think you might die? <laughs> I mean, you don't, you just can't imagine what's going to happen if you don't have your pump. It, there's, it's not possible. It's right. not in your schema to be without your pump if you're not with your baby. Yeah. And so I start the, you know, completely freak. And my friend just says, well, haven't you been using your hands? Because I'd been dabbling in hand expression after pumping sessions at that point. And I said, but I can't not like that. Like I can't get it out with my hands. I can't get enough out. I am not enough right. of myself by myself without a machine. I am not enough. I said, it's a huge <laughs> theme in your book is about yeah. being enough. Yeah. yeah. And so she says, well, why don't we give it a go? And if it doesn't work, then we'll drive and meet your in-laws and figure out what to do after you nurse the baby. And so I'm away and I'm in my classes, in my space, in my happy place. And then every three hours, there I am squeezing my boobs <laughs> <laughs> and the milk is just coming out. And, you know, I'm also nice and relaxed. Thank you, yoga. Thank you. Oh, hi. Mm. Thank you, friend. And uh, it was a massive moment of self-discovery. And there's a photo in the book of me counting the ounces. <laughs> there's a lot of milk there for hand there's expression. A lot of milk. I mean, yeah, I, I. I expressed 29 ounces of milk in 24 hours, which one ounce per hour is fantastic output when you're away from baby. Yeah. And my father-in-law called the next morning. We go to the retreat on Friday and he calls Saturday morning at 6 a.m. And he's panicking because he's calculated. He's an engineer. He's very into mathematics. <laughs> he has a, he, he writes his mileage. He calculates his mileage by hand on his car every oh, time wow. he fills his car with gas, even though the car does it. <laughs> And he is a Prius, but, um, he had calculated ounces that he needed per hour while I was away. And he had determined that he didn't have enough in the milk that I'd left. And he called that morning and said, we need to come up to Ojai and get more milk from you this afternoon at lunch. And I said, you know, I really think you have enough. Like you have this many bottles left and I've only gone until this hour tomorrow. Right. And I said, but you can come up for lunch. And one of the reasons I was so comfortable with that is I had plenty of milk to give him. And I knew that there was more where that came from. And I never felt that way about my body ever in my whole life. Wow. So that was a huge bonus for the yoga retreat. Yeah. You got a huge life lesson and um, 
just encompassing the I am enough. I think I think that's just an amazing theme that you have that flows all throughout the book. Can yeah. you um, tell us that you have a a really intense story in your book that I think in a in a way also sort of um, helped you to get where you are now. Yes. Um, and it comes in the end through some healing, but um, in a way you talk about ha- feeling that you you were not enough in that moment. So I love for listeners just to hear that story because I think it depicts sort of how the rest of your story goes. Yeah. And you know, Ashley, I'd really love to tell it. And for me to be able to say that is a massive sign of my own healing because this is a story that used to be terrifying for me to admit to anyone. Because when I was a child, I thought that I could control things. <laughs> right. And I was a pretty anxious child and fearful and um, very obsessive compulsive. I also had a very happy life. You know, there's so many ways in our, in our lives that we're able to compensate. And so even though I had a lot of anxieties and compulsions, really, I was a happy kid. But by the time I was 14, I thought that I could control things. I was a control freak. I wanted to have perfect grades and I wanted to, you know, I was already thinking about getting into the best college, et cetera. And I wanted to be perfect. That was how I lived. And I was very disappointed when I, when there was evidence that I wasn't. Okay. Um, and so I go to babysit for a family. I babysat for many families at this point on a Friday night. I'm sorry, a Saturday night in October of 1995. I'm 14 years old. I'm a freshman in high school. I'm one of six children. I'm very experienced with babies. My youngest siblings are twins. I put them to sleep many times helping my mom. And I go to this family's house. It's the first time they've left their newborn with a babysitter. She is 11 weeks old. Their son is almost two. And the baby's name is Catherine. And she's very fussy that night. And just, it's challenging to be with an almost two-year-old and 11-week-old, as we now know in our mothering lives. Yes. And I put her to sleep and she died. She died after I put her to sleep. I mean, it is, going on 23 years later and one there's no other way to say it but that way and two I can't believe that happened how could that have happened right and so I find out that she's died in her sleep after I'm home and uh, someone from the emergency room has called my family Mm. And told my parents, and they've had to come tell me, because when I left, the baby was sleeping, and I was on my way up to check on her, and her mom said, don't worry, I'll go check on her, you go home. Right. And so here I am, 14 years old, thinking that, you know, if I'm going to have good things in my life, I'm going to control them. And so then if something bad happens, or something horrific, something unfathomable happens, I must have done something wrong. Right. And I lived with that for a long time. Did you, um, were your parents encouraging of you to talk about it at the time or? My parents were wonderful. They were wonderful. I, and I think I always say that when I meet someone who's in their early twenties or 
you know, in college or just into their early adulthood, sometimes I'm like, you must be at that stage where you're thinking that your parents did everything wrong. Right. Right. (laughs) And I remember having a moment when I first really started dealing with Catherine's death as a young adult thinking, I wish my parents had. Mm-hmm. And the things that I wish they'd, ma- they'd done were like, make me go to therapy, force me, you know, <laughs> I was not to be forced to do anything ever. Right. And also, my parents offered me every resource. And I said, No, I'm okay. I'm fine. And that was very well modeled for me by my mom and women around me, like we are strong. Mm-hmm. And if we're anything less, but, you know, very obviously strong, then we must be weak, but we can't be weak. Right. And so my parents, I mean, I'll never forget, like the morning after she died, they both walked into my bedroom and (laughs) no one was allowed in my bedroom. It was spick and span and everything had its place. I had 87 or so knickknacks. And if you moved one, I got mad. (laughs) And they came into my room And with six kids, you don't usually get your own room. But because I kept mine the cleanest, they said I could have my own room. Oh. And they they walk in and I'm like, no one's ever in my sacred space. And they just, you know, they just want to check on me and talk and see if there's anything I need to say. And I'm sad, but I don't know what to say. And, you know, maybe they didn't know what to say. I mean, my mom and I have, and my dad too, but mostly my mom and I have had a lot of conversations in the last few years of how difficult that was for them. Gosh, if. I cannot imagine anything like that happened to one of my daughters. Right. And so I had all the resources I needed. And I remember my dad sitting down with me and showing me some brochures that a colleague had given him that explains, you know, the different stages of grief and also some places where grief counseling was available in our town. And I just said, no, I'm fine. Do you think that you really felt fine or did you know that there was something underneath the surface? that you were aware that you were pushing down? Or was it just this is um, the pattern that you knew, the feeling that you knew when something was wrong, that you made yourself feel fine? I mean, I think our patterns are very strong. I don't think I, I don't think I knew that. I thought that I had something that I was going to have to deal with later. Hmm. When I become a mom and I have a baby, I'm going to have to deal with this. Interesting. Because I'm going to be scared that my baby will die. Right. But right now, instead, I mean, I have two close friends who told me many years later, because I didn't start talking about this, really talking until many years later, at least really a decade. And two friends have told me separately, when you called me to tell me that she had died, you asked me if I was sitting down. And then the other friend said, after you told me, you asked me if I was okay. Hmm. So I saw myself as the strong one. And you're delivering the news and and making sure that everyone else is okay. Yeah, because if anyone is supposed to be able to handle this, it's me. And gosh, looking back, I was a 14-year-old kid. Right. But I didn't feel like a kid. I mean, I, when I was 14, I felt more comfortable with people older than me than people my own age. Um, But no, I don't think I knew. I had no idea what I was pushing down or tucking down or not seeing at the time. Um, If you look back as 
an adult woman, can you see the ways that the event affected you as a teen and in your 20s, maybe affected the way you made decisions or Mm. your relationships? Do you see any connections? Yeah. I mean, that question really fascinates me because, again, I feel that I compensated very well. Um, And yet I chose some destructive relationships. I very deeply loved a series of men in long-term relationships who were hard on me Hmm. and who I felt I needed to take care of or fix. Okay. And one in particular, my long-term boyfriend in college, who I was 102% sure I would marry, and that was the way it was going to be, was extremely hard on me. And he's the only person in my life who ever said, but what if it was your fault? Oh, wow. Wow, right? Wow. And so, I, I mean, I, I, I think it affected me most in my self-talk. Because while I was living a life, I mean, we still do this sometimes, right? Like we're starting a new business or a new endeavor or what have you. And no matter what, the way that we talk to ourselves isn't as awesome (laughs) as the way we learn to talk about ourselves. Right. As we're spreading the word about our purpose or mission or whatever it is we're, we're feel called to do right now. And so like, I'm way harder on myself than I say on social media. And I'm getting better at noticing that and owning it and writing about it and speaking about it. But in general, my whole life, I think I appeared far more confident and comfortable in myself than I was. And the place where I was uncomfortable with myself was way deep down. And it was this line of, I make bad things happen. Hmm. Because that's what I did, right? Like I walk into this family's life and she dies. And then I walk out because we weren't in touch for a number of years after that. And they moved away and we later became close friends from different countries. They live in the UK. Um, But I think that it affected the way that I viewed myself. And so guess what? The way that we view ourselves affects everything. Mm Mm-hmm. And yet, I have always had an incredible family, group of friends, network. I really like people. I enjoy connecting with people and meeting new people. I know how to, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book is gather my team. I know who's good for me. And I seek out people who will be positive in my life. And so if I hadn't had all of that, it could have been a really bad situation in the long term. Right. But I talked it down very well. Yeah. Do you remember when you decided that it was time to heal from your trauma or when you, um, let's say, acknowledged that you had had a trauma that you needed to heal from? I do. I noticed over a period of many years that I would use the story of Catherine's death as a barometer to see if someone could love me. Hmm. So whether it was, I mean, I, I told my high school boyfriend that Catherine died, I think right before our first kiss, but I needed him to know before we kissed for the first time. Wow. 
isn't that, I mean, there's so much there. And so, you know, clearly I was carrying this idea of being bad or someone who caused a form of doom. (laughs) It feels very dramatic now, but that happened with friends, with potential boyfriends, with women and men and just anyone who I was kind of entering into what I thought might be a long-term relationship in some form, they had to know the Catherine story early on. And I kept feeling like, oh my gosh, they still picked me. (laughs) And so I was conscious of that action, but it wasn't until I finished college and was working in a research lab and was, um, my office was next door to a postdoc in clinical psychology a wonderful man who I really connected with and felt great about. And I did two things. I started reading a book by Wally Lamb called I Know This Much Is True. Have you read that? I have not. I I mean, I'm not spoiling anything by saying that very early in the book, the main character's seven-week-old daughter dies of SIDS. Oh, wow. What a synchronicity that that did he? Incredible. Yeah, okay. So I don't know why that, I don't know why I started reading that book, but I started, oh no, it was because I read She's Come Undone. Everyone was reading She's Come Undone. Oh yes, I read that from Oprah's um, book club. Exactly. Yes, I read that. So long ago. And then I said, let me read this other Wally Lamb book. And so I walk into this fellow's office and I say, I'm reading this book and it's so good, blah, 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 blah. And he's a fellow in clinical psych, so he's really reading me in a way I don't totally understand. And parallel to this, I have made friends with the, I'm the neurologist who is part of our department. And I'd gone to talk to him about neuroscience because it was something I'd always been interested in. And I took him a piece of my writing and this piece of writing was about Catherine's death and it was macabre Mm. and creepy. And it was called, I was just the babysitter. And that was the first line and the last line. That kind of gave me chills. It's, I mean, I have to find it. I haven't looked at it in so many years, but I'd written about it at the same time that that college boyfriend and I were going through a horrific breakup several years prior. I took, I don't even remember writing it, but I took a very short period of time, wrote it and tucked it away. And I took the neuroscientist was really into writing for fun. And I said, will you read this piece of writing for me? And he said, sure. And I left it in his mailbox very casually. <laughs> and so at about the same time, this, this neuroscientist called me and said, can I see you in my office? And he said, have you ever talked? He said, is this true? And have you ever talked to anyone about this? I really think it might have happened in the same 24-hour period. And I'm pretty confident these two colleagues talked to each other about me as well. Because Joe, my postdoc colleague, said, what is it about this book that's striking you? What are you, what are you connecting with so much? Because I'm sure on, on his end, it's like, why is she enjoying this book about something so horrific and traumatic so deeply? Mm-hmm. And I told him about Catherine. And he said, have you ever talked to someone about this? And I said, no, the same thing I'd said to our other colleague. And he said, I'd like for you to. He was just very direct. He said, I'd like for you to. He said, we have an employee assistance plan here at the university. You will get eight visits for free. There's someone right across the street. Here is her card. Why don't you give her a call? He had a plan. (laughs) And I went to her and I told her everything. And I said, "I, I just feel 
that there's something there. And she's like, are, are you kidding me? <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> and uh, I had an anxiety attack, a really intense anxiety attack. I think I described it in the book. Yeah, in a, in a, it was in a Marshalls at Christmas time. I love Marshalls now. I can go back to the place of my anxiety attack and thoroughly enjoy myself. But Marshalls is spinning around me because I think I've lost my wallet even though I haven't. And so I go to her and I say, you know, this horrible thing happened and this baby, I don't even think I process as a horrible thing. I said, oh, this one time this baby died when I put her to sleep. I know. And I said, and then when I, after I scheduled my appointment with you, I kind of went crazy in Marshall's the other day because my boyfriend, same guy said, I think he just went crazy. Which, by the way, is the least supportive thing to say to a partner having yeah. an anxiety attack. Thank you. <laughs> oh, and so she said, I mean, we did a very small number of sessions together and I skipped out. People do this with therapy. Sometimes I skipped out on my last session. I was moving out of town and I left her a voicemail instead of going to my last session. So clearly I was scared about some of it. But she said to me, you need, she said, have you talked to the family? And I said, no. And she said, you need to write to them. Can you find their address? And I called three or four different people in my hometown who hadn't heard from me and barely knew me in eight or nine years, but I babysat for their kids after this family recommended me to other people as their babysitter, which they did. Oh, that's a huge testament. <laughs> I was like, why are they recommending me? Oh. And so um, I called, I finally reached one of them who had been close friends with them when they lived in town. And she gave me their new address and I wrote them a letter. And I said at the end, I finally understand that Catherine's death was not my fault and that perhaps you don't blame me for ruining your lives in the way I have for all these years. And did you really feel that when you wrote that, that you didn't blame yourself? Oh, well, I thought I did at the time. It felt like massive growth at the time. But, you know, you get a taste of it and you think it's everything. Yes. And then later you continue experiencing the everything and realize that that healing process never ends. So this is a great uh, place for me to stop and ask you to read a passage from your book. It's probably one of my favorite on page, I would love to. page 116. Shall we read about healing? Yes. It's at the bottom of the page, the last paragraph, because um, this paragraph is so beautiful and it parallels really well to birth. To me, it did. And I, I just would love people to hear it. Yeah. I'm telling you right now, healing from trauma, any kind of trauma, is no small thing. It's really fucking scary. And in moments, the burden of healing can feel far too heavy to carry. And sometimes, even after you've consciously set the intention to heal, you wish you'd never started the healing process in the first place. Because it doesn't always feel so healing. In fact, sometimes the process of healing can feel downright awful. Like you're going backwards instead of forwards. Reliving hurt that you never wanted to feel again. And doing it by choice. The truth is, sometimes, in order to truly heal, we have to allow ourselves to fully experience things we don't want to feel, because the only way out is through. Healing is part of the ever-challenging, always awesome journey to enoughness. Oh, that paragraph says so much in it. 
that I mean, just so much in there. And, um, you know, you end with the journey to enoughness, which I'll transition to is this ongoing theme in your book. Yes. Um, so, um, talk to me about when you decided that you were enough and that you wanted to help. It seems like you want in the book, you want to help other women realize that they are enough. (laughs) I'm laughing because I know that you are one of the several people, more than several, who have said to me at various points, maybe you should read your book today (laughs) Oh, (laughs) or something along those lines. Um, Because I know that I am enough on the cosmic level, but on the day-to-day level, oh, do I get in my head sometimes? (sighs) I honestly think writing this book has been a massive part of my own journey to enoughness. And every time I open it, I was talking to a fellow author recently whose book came out around the same time as mine. And she said, oh, I I could never open my book and read it, nor am I ever going to. And I said, oh, I feel like I need to read mine all the time because I wrote it for everyone and for me. Right. And so I think that having this book out into the world is a massive part of me realizing that I am enough. And that, you know, the big full circle moment for me with the healing from Catherine's death is this ridiculous thing that happened almost three years ago where I birthed my baby by myself. Yes. Let's talk about that. It's a thing. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Because the, as as you're talking about birth, this paragraph to me sounds like natural birth. Um, mm. Or I, you know, I hate to use the word natural birth. So I tend to say unmedicated vaginal birth, which is a mouthful, but so is birth. By the way, you are so wonderful I know I'm going off on a tangent. You're really wonderful with inclusive uh, language in the book. Mm. And I love that. And you're also very clear when you're not sure what to say. You say, mm. this is the term I'm using now. I'm not sure if we should be using it. Maybe it'll change. I love that. Yes. But with unmedicated vaginal birth, you absolutely, I mean, this is why this paragraph stuck out to me. You absolutely get to a point where you think, why am I choosing to do this. This is not what I want to do right now. I I changed my mind. I want to go back. <laughs> but, but by the time you think that way, there is no going back. Yeah. Uh, and the only way is through it. Um, yes. So bring us to the day that you ha- un- have an unintentional, unassisted, unmedicated vaginal birth at home. I will. And you know this, but not everyone who's listening knows this yet, that I am now a doula, among other things. And my favorite thing that a client has ever said to me during a birth is, I've changed my mind. (laughs) (laughs) And her partner and I were looking at each other trying so hard not to laugh. And I wanted to be like, hey, about what part? (laughs) And this was someone who intended to have medication and it didn't work out for her. Um, But I always think about that moment because that is exactly it. She said what so many of us feel. I've changed my mind. And, you know, I feel that as a mother sometimes too. Yes. What are we doing? How do we get Um, here? Yeah. So we planned a home birth for our second child hugely because of some ways in which I did not feel heard 
in my first pregnancy with the care that I was getting. I had an obstetrician I really loved and a really crappy experience at my hospital and a very anxiety-filled first pregnancy because of um, them telling me my baby was too small when she wasn't. And it was not fun. And so that's another way where you say they're basically telling me I'm not enough. My body yep. is not enough. Yeah, I'm broken. Here uh, is the proof. Yes. And I think a lot of women get that in pregnancy and childbirth in general. It's all out of your control. And everyone is telling you about your body. Yes, absolutely. And so of the options in front of us, we live in New York City, we have lots of options for everything from food to birthing. <laughs> and I, my husband and I decided to have a home birth. And, you know, I say that and also want to add that we had some trepidation about it. Not everyone who chooses to birth at home is like, oh, I'm going to have a home birth. I'm not scared at all. Right. <laughs> um, and we felt that we wanted to have a home birth because of the way we'd been treated in the hospital. And... We also wanted to find a provider we were very comfortable with. We found a midwife who we felt great about. And so we planned this home birth and everyone's going to be there, Ashley, everybody and their mother. <laughs> <laughs> and your mother, kind of. Uh, yep. Yep. I wanted a red tent birth. Did you read the red tent? I didn't. I know. It's on the huge stack of books on my bedside since you know, 2000, yeah. I think. <laughs> yeah. And it will only take you a year to read. Right? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Mom life. So I have this whole team who's supposed to come to my birth, my mom, two dear friends, my midwife, her assistant, my doula, a photographer. And then there's a babysitter who's also a dear friend who's supposed to come pick up my daughter and maybe present for part of it. And there's a neighbor I've met recently who was fascinated with the fact I was having a home birth. And I said, you can come. <laughs> and so I think that's nine people, maybe. Okay. Um, and so best laid plans. I go into labor. Looking back on it, probably around 440 in the morning. But I don't know I'm in labor until 504. I think I'm just having really intense pain related to a full bladder, which happens sometimes at the end of pregnancy. And uh, at 5.04, I realized that what I'm feeling are contractions, even though they don't feel like contractions, they just feel like intense, constant, unyielding, all the words about continuous pain, pain. <laughs> and I call my midwife because I realized that I looked at the clock in two moments where the pain was the worst and they were six minutes apart. And suddenly I'm processing that these are contractions. And so I call the midwife and I call the doula and I call the friends and I call the photographer. And I think we have plenty of time, which is what I tell the photographer when she asks whether to take a cab or the train and everyone is on their way to me. And I am moving through all of the things because when you have a precipitous labor, which means extremely fast, you go from zero to baby in a very short period of time, you experience what many people experience through the whole course of their labor, just compressed into a very short period of time. So the intensity is times a bajillion. And so 
my water breaks at 5.52 in the morning, and my baby is born at 5.58. It's pretty tight. Yeah. So none of those people made it. It's just you and your husband, sort of. My husband is there, sort of. I mean, he's definitely there, but he's dealing with the trying to get the birth tub filled up, which isn't working. And I'm telling him to stop talking to me about the tub, even though I told him his only job was the tub a second, a second ago. <laughs> and I also, you know, I have this perception and as a doula, I've learned this too, that the person outside of the birthing person's body doesn't understand what's happening in there the way the person in it does. Mm-hmm. And so when my husband's saying, you know, babe, I, I just can't get the tub filled up. This, the hose will not connect to the shower and we need this adapter or this wrench we were going to go get today. I'm like, why are you talking to me about this? Do you have any idea what's happening in my body right now? Like there's a baby about to come right now. <laughs> and I mean, you've read the birth story in the book. It's, yes. It's, <laughs> it's quite um, colorful and really funny. <laughs> and if anyone's ever given birth, they will 100% relate. It's all his fault. All of it. Is his fault. <laughs> All, everything, every bit of it is his fault. And the poor thing yeah. is trying really hard to make whatever oh, it is you want happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the photographer is supposed to be there to take a photo because what I wanted was a photo of my baby in the moment where I first saw him or her. I held on to the moment that my first daughter was born for several months after she was born. And then I remembered that it kind of faded away the way that a loved one who's passed, their voice goes away in your head. I thought I will never forget exactly how she looked when I first saw her. And now I can't conjure up that picture again. And so I hired a photographer, you know, 10 days before I had my baby, because I was like, someone needs to take the picture of the moment the baby first comes out so I can keep seeing it. And I've also seen the like 25 photos that show that birth is beautiful on BuzzFeed <laughs> or something the day before. And I'm like, oh, I need some of these photos. And I thought the photos would be like of my husband touching me lovingly and or the baby's first cry. And so there was a picture of the baby's first cry. And it was my husband who took it because as I'm about to push out a baby, I reach down and can feel her head. And I'm telling him, call the doula and tell her I can feel the baby's head. And he's on the phone in the hallway and I'm like, why is he on the phone? <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out that doula is giving him instructions for how to help deliver the baby, which I didn't, I didn't need those instructions. I needed her, him to come take a picture. <laughs> Priority. So why is he on the damn phone? Yeah. And so I screamed at him, get camera. <laughs> Just like that. And he grabs his camera. He's an amateur photographer. He's taken a few lessons and he had had a nice DSLR and he walks in and he takes a series of four photos, the third of which became famous. And they are me reaching down to receive my baby. And then me receiving her like the lion King right in front of me. And I'm on my knees and I'm looking at her. And so I brought her into the world by myself. How did that feel? Was that a moment where you felt, did you feel alone or did you feel completely fine? I have never felt more powerful in my entire life. Well, I have to say that that happened, that photo happens to be the first introduction I had to you. And it was ah. bef before I had ever seen you on anything else. I Well, more it was really more your story, but that photo um, for listeners went around the world. 
and sort of became famous for there's sort of a long story in there, which is amazing. And I and I suggest that everyone read it. But there was a article and it spoke about Catherine, but it was prompted by this photo that sort of went around the world because Facebook took it down because it was reported. Um, and for everyone out there, please sign the petition to let birth photos be on social yeah. media. Yeah. Um, they are not porn. Um no. And so that was the first introduction I had to you. And I remember this is years ago. And I remember thinking, she is so brave. I cannot mm. believe that. And then when I was reading your book, I saw how and the why you could be so brave. Because you speak about, um, even though the people weren't there, you set up your team. And you speak about yes. this as a metaphor as well for life and for all things. So can you speak about the importance of having a support team and why that makes you the best you? Yeah. So one of my dear friends who was meant to attend my birth that day, my friend Rose, she's mentioned in the book a couple times. I said to her, I still can't believe this happened and I wanted you guys to be here. And, you know, I just, I was just in a state of shock. And she said, you know, you were meant to cross the finish line on your own. We were there cheering you the whole way, but you were meant to cross the finish line on your own. And that's when I processed this would not have happened if not for all of these people who were willing to be there with me. And I think I know that the people whom we gather to be on our team for either a part of our life or our whole life, for whatever purpose we decide they'll serve, they are with us when we are doing impossible things. And they are with us even when they are not physically present. And so I talk about gathering your team because. I was not at all alone when I gave birth to my second child, not for a second. Mm -hmm. And even if my husband hadn't been there, which I'm glad he was, yeah, for, because he made for a good photographer. <laughs> um, but I, you know, there are just moments. I, you know, Ashley, there are just moments in your life where everything changes, and the way we experience those moments can only be understood by us. By us just like birth. And I just knew that everybody was with me. And I also knew that I could not have brought my baby girl into the world in 2015 had Catherine not died in 1995 and her mother and my mother and so many incredible people, many of whom identify as women, many of whom are mothers, have been there for me for all those years. It was a full circle moment. Wow. And so my hope is that over time, we learn how essentially to hire and fire <laughs> the people in our lives who will serve us in the ways that we need, because then we can do anything. And in particular, we can do things that we specifically thought we could not do. Yes. And you have so many great examples of that in the book, and I won't get them away because I want people to read the whole story. But you have a lot of examples of how you chose to fire people, uh, professionals in your life, because they weren't a good fit. They weren't giving you good advice. And over time, you learn to sort of go with your intuition more and more and more. Um, so I think that that's sort of a beautiful um, 
a beautiful story. And you also, I wrote down um, three lessons that sort of go throughout the book mm. that kind of encom- that is surrounded with that. Um, you are never alone. You are enough and you get to decide. Um, I love the, where did you come with the you get to decide? Because we already spoke about the you're never alone and you are enough. You get to decide means that you have power. And it started, and this book started, with the active hand expression. I can choose whether to feed my baby from the tap. I can choose to pump or I can choose to hand express. And when I realize that I get to decide, then suddenly I shift from a place of complete helplessness and feeling controlled by something, which for me was very much the pump, Mm -hmm. to what would I like to do? I get to decide. And so out of that, I mean, this is the perfect example of something that started with hand expression and then became about life. Because the more and more and more I wrote and the deeper the lessons got, I realized I get to decide how I experience Catherine's death. I get to decide what happens in my healing process. I get to decide where to birth my baby and with whom. And then they won't be there, but they were there. (laughs) But, you know, all of these professionals that you mentioned, I felt quite traumatized by the many people who told me through the evidence that they had that I was not enough, that that was a fact. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, I believed, in most cases, I believed them the first time and sometimes the several times after that. <laughs> um, and yet I learned that when I changed my mind, when I decided that someone else was right for me and that person was not, it's just been this whole power and freedom thing. I mean, the Milk and Mama, which is my company and movement that I started based on the Go Milk Yourself method that I've developed around hand expression in life, started with this idea of you have more power, more freedom, and less stress because that is exactly how my life of feeding my child with my body changed when I learned to hand express. I had less stress and more power and more freedom. And so... I feel that the concept of you get to decide has really grown from there. And I think that the more we take the concept of you get to decide into all areas of our lives, the more power we have, which builds our feelings that we are enough and leads us to gather our team so that we feel and know that we're never alone. And um, writing on that, on page 75, you wrote about one of the most important lessons you learned, and it was from your doula, and it's that you are the most important person. Um, And it sounds like a lot of things stemmed from that about you getting to decide. Would you say that those two are connected? You're the most important person and you get to decide? Hugely connected. And um, then later in the book, you have an exercise for people. And I, I would like to borrow it for our listeners, if that's Great. okay. Would love it. So um, 
this is talking about self-care, which, as I said, in a roundabout way, your your business to teach women to hand express started because you put your self-care first and made it a priority, which I think is amazing and a huge lesson for a lot of women to learn. So um, thank you. And I do want to interject because we've mentioned we've touched on this briefly, but that yes. over time I have stopped using the word women. Oh, you're right. You're right. I, I apologize. No, I mean, this is this is us learning, right? This yes, is learning language a, over time and how correct. language develops over time that not everyone who feeds their baby with their body identifies as a woman or a mom or a mother or a mama. And that the term that I've chosen for go milk yourself is a lactating parent. And then sometimes I just like to use human. That's that's a, a great. Um, thank you for stopping me, because I think a lot of times it's we almost go with sort of this. I don't know the the rhythm. I guess that we've learned or the words that we've learned, and it's it's yes. great to be able to have someone to stop you in the moment to re- help to retrain you. So thank you for doing that. Um, so for humans and for people, a lot of times we don't put ourselves first and we don't see that yep. we're the most important person. And in your book, you talk about when you do the self-care, then you can be the better person. And you have an exercise on page 81 and it says, grab a post-it, notebook, journal, back of a receipt, piece of child's artwork. You snuck into the recycling bin, guilty. Take a moment to make a list of 10 things you need right now to feel good, big or small. It doesn't matter. Choose one that you can do in the next 24 hours. And you say, put it on the calendar when you can do it. So I would like anyone listening to do that because I did that and I was like, oh, yeah, I can fit that in. It was, you know, something very small. So I would love listeners, if you could, to do it and then write to me and let me know what you did. Um, Because I found that it was an amazing exercise, just as you stopped my pattern in the way that I spoke, to stop my pattern of the, I can put myself off until later. It's fine. Because when, when you do it, in the moment, you see that it is possible to put yourself first and that things don't fall apart. Imagine that. Yeah, which is which is really great. And now I have oh, it's so hard for me to pick the things that I want um that I want to talk about with you because you just have some inspiring stories. I'd love to hear from you. What was the most important thing that you learned through the process of writing the book that you really hope comes across to people that read your book? Mm. Wow. That the journey never ends. I mean, I talk about the journey to enoughness and we've talked about healing in this conversation today. I mean, this book is a version of what I knew in the now of August 2017 when I finished the last words. And there's so much more already now. And I think The big lesson there is one of the tenets that I talk about in the book, which is there's more where that came from. Mm -hmm. And when we learn that about our milk, I mean, what an aha moment. There's still milk in there after I was, quote, empty, unquote. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, if we take that into all of our lives and understand that 
when we find our enoughness, it's actually a well that we can draw from any time we'd like. Hmm. And when we draw from that well, we're going to take better care of ourselves as if we are the most important people as we are. And then that extends to the whole world. There's more where that came from is this constantly developing theme in my life now. I mean, it's the beginning of a new year. A lot of people are thinking, have thought or talked about recently, like, what's a word you're focusing on? What are your resolutions? And I was like, I don't need to do all of those things. But something kept coming up for me, and it was space. There's something happening for me in 2018 that is related to space and creating more, honoring more Hmm. space in my life, in space in my schedule, space in my home, space in my bank account, space in my heart. (laughs) You know, there are all these space in my body. I mean, there are lots of places where I can take that idea and it means a lot of very personal things to me. And the whole idea here is as soon as I realize I can accomplish something that I thought I never could, that means I can keep doing that. There is more where that came from. Hmm. Amazing. What are you still hoping to learn that you haven't already started? <laughs> Everything. Everything. Okay. <laughs> um, I would, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm still not as kind and compassionate towards myself as I am to everyone else. So learning and, that. Yeah. I mean, I find that I, I'm pretty good at, at well, when we're extremely tired, <laughs> sometimes things change mm-hmm. in the way that we talk to ourselves and receive other people. And so, for example, there have been a couple times where I've been at a birth for a very long time. And there have been two times now where I've been awake for about 39 hours. That's a long time. That's a long time to be awake. And so on the next day when I, you know, maybe I've slept a tiny bit or I'm on my way home from the birth and I just cannot wait for my head to hit the pillow, I'll find myself, there'll be some scarcity talk in my head Hmm. about time or about money or about my to-do list that's been put by the wayside and will continue to be by the wayside or, you know, having missed time with my kids and my husband or whatever. Having to, I always have to, I mean, my schedule, I have a shirt that says, unless I'm at a birth. (laughs) <laughs> because my schedule has to shift all the time. I mean, you you and I have been through this, right? It's like, yes. oh, sorry, I'm at a birth right now. Or I'm heading to one. And so, um, I, so that's an example of a time when I see myself being hard on myself. And I, I caught myself today. I had one of these magical days that I'm working to create more of where I really, I work from home for the day. I don't have clients, so I have to see during the daytime. And I have the apartment to myself. And inevitably, I make a list of 17 things to do. Mm. And inevitably, when I've only done two by noon, I start to hear a voice in my head. And today I said, why don't you say the same thing you say to your postpartum doula clients, which is maybe the only thing you needed to do today was just be. And if all you needed to do was just be, then good for you for calling the cable company and good for you for taking a bath. Have you read Tiffany Dufu's book, Drop the Ball? No, I need to. Oh, you need to, because she talks about that. Yes. She talks about not making to-do lists. She doesn't do them anymore. (gasps) She has no lists. Oh, yes, please. No lists, and the only thing that gets written down is on a calendar. 
So nothing, there are no tasks to be done unless there is space already on the calendar to do them. Otherwise, it doesn't need to get done. It's not going to happen. You just drop the ball um, and you're okay with it. Mind blown. I'm about to go throw away the post-it for say Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday on my kitchen cabinet. away (laughs) and pick up her book because it's it's pretty amazing. Um, I will and I will be sure to tear them into tiny little pieces before (laughs) putting them in the recycling bin. Um, Yeah. So on that note, I want to say goodbye. There are so many things that I wanted to talk to you about because this book is just chock full of amazing life lessons. And I'm hoping people will read it so that they get all of the lessons. And maybe I'll have to have you back um, if I have a subject love to, it. to talk to you about. But. You know, and for me, the book is like my baby. Like when you have a new baby, you want everyone to see how absolutely adorable your baby is. It's adorable. And, <laughs> yeah, I just want, you know, I'm just like, look, everybody, here's my baby. I know you'll love her. <laughs> well, I um, have, and I've, I've recommended it to a few people and um, I've bought two now for gifts so um it's, thank you I've, I've said that every expecting parent grandparent person who loves them person <laughs> who loves them dual you know any birth worker should should read this because there's some yeah. really empowering lessons in there and also um things that i think uh people that are giving birth are not equipped to express in in yeah. many moments and yeah. are not empowered to express. And I think I, some birth workers and some, um, you know, let's say post-birth practitioners like pediatricians or doctors um, maybe are not aware that they need to give the space for yeah. the conversation. And so I would love, you know, anyone in this realm to to read it so that they can see. And, you know, some of my favorite feedback, including some reviews, have been from people who have never lactated, in some cases who will never, and have never had children or haven't yet had children. And they, you know, the, the, the messages I get from people are, I'm sitting on the tube in London crying yes. as I read your story. Yes. And, you know, I couldn't stop laughing, said a friend of mine who, you know, lactated a number of years ago and may or may not far away future. And so I really feel that I wanted to write a book that was um, very specific to what I know and have become an expert at, and also a book for everyone. And Ashley, you know, you may have some last words that you say at the end of your interviews, and I am going to have some last words for you, which people will only understand if they read the book. Okay. The words are, go milk yourself. (laughs) Amazing. I think that's a great place to end. Thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Tell everyone where they can find you online and where they can order the book. Um, My website is www.themilkinmama.com. And all of my social media is at themilkinmama. And the book is available at this stage, only on Amazon. And yes, Amazon Prime. Great. That's what all the mamas and all the parents need. That's Uh, right. Amazon Prime. Okay. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to rate, review, and share. 